Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me on today's episode are Amory and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst Team. Today, we discuss the green shoots in the IPO market and a number of restaurant companies that are looking to go public in 2023. We break down the AI wars that are developing between Microsoft and Google, and we chat about the future of streaming now that Warner Brothers Discovery has started to license out its own content. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Amory Emmett, welcome to another day in paradise on the Stock Club podcast. Um, this is recording the day after LeBron James broke the record for most points in the NBA in history, which is pretty impressive. But uh, I love the photo. Did you see the photo? It's Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And he's in the front row of the crowd. And there is about a thousand phones up videoing the like final shot when LeBron broke the record. And he's the only one in it without his phone out. So I thought that was like a perfect in the moment kind of photo. It's great. It was an amazing photo. It, it actually thought it was an iconic photograph. Apart from it being an iconic sporting moment, it's iconic because one of the greatest business people of all time is right there, as you said, watching him with his own two eyes. And we've, I think we've all read uh, Shoe Dog. Have you read it, Anne-Marie? No. Read Have it. you read it, Mike? No. <laughs> we've <laughs> all read okay. it. It's Grand nice to know that. That's how you think. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, look, it's it uh, is one of the it's it's the arguably joint best business book I've ever read. And what I mean by that is uh, autobiographical or biographical uh, business book I've ever read. It is so exciting. You see, really, this man was uh, is to sport what Warren Buffett was to conglomerate investing, or what <laughs> Steve Jobs was to product redesign, and has had as big an impact on that part of the business world as the others did in their own. He's the Walt Disney, if you like, of uh, sporting goods. And he's he seems like a very relatable character. Even in the book, he talks about uh, he was going to the cinema one night with his wife and over in the other queue or the other line was uh, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And he's like, hey, guys. And they're like, hey, what's up, Phil? And it was something like, wow, wow what cinema is that for I a start? I was about to say, is this like $1,000 <laughs> seats cinema? in the cinema or something? <laughs> But at that time, he yeah, yeah, that's true. It was on a yacht, but he can walk into a cinema and not get recognized, unlike the other pair who I'm sure had teams of bodyguards with them. But um, he seems like a really um, pure character, and I just thought it was a superb picture. And I think everyone should Google and have a look at that one you just described, Mike. Yeah. Uh, Do we think it'll be on a Nike billboard by the end of the month? (laughs) Yeah, I don't, Nike seem to make their own ads. There's that famous uh, Tiger Woods shot, and it's like the ball is rolling like inch by inch into the hole, and the yeah. last thing you see is the Nike logo just disappear. And it's like the most important gosh wow. ever. It's unbelievable. Yeah, but uh, he does put quite a bit of effort in his book into defending Tiger Woods' character, and Ooh. yeah, it was kind of interesting because probably like, came out at the right. Ra- yeah, yeah, came out at the wrong yeah, time, right. right after that's the right. scandal and everything. Yeah. That was yeah. massive. That was huge. That was like a cultural reset when that happened. 
like disproportionate to the actual severity of the events. Like it just concerned his family and people reacted like it was a political disaster. They made him they made him do an apology before the masters, I think, or something. The masters made him do an apology. Yeah, they well, Nike made a commercial with him and it was just them slowly zooming into his face and it was a voiceover of his dad of a voicemail he had left him, just like talking to him about like all of the how hard he had worked and things like that. It was a really weird time in history. But also Emmett worth noting, the ghostwriter of Shoe Dog is also the ghostwriter of Prince Harry's book. So you should put that on your list. One hundred percent. Now you've sold Great. it to me. I'm gonna read that. <laughs> There's a poster of the royal family behind Emmett's head right now, so I yeah. think he's already got it in the <laughs> Plenty of business ideas can be found in Spare. <laughs> oh, for sure. Is it Spare? Is that the name of the book? Yeah, Spare. Huh. Spare me. Okay. Mm. <laughs> um, we'll get into it before we start going off. In the By the way, Spare is an Irish slur. We, I think most of our listeners in Ireland would know when you call someone a Spare. I guess that's maybe it's a global slur. No. If you call somebody a spare. But you'd say about something, your man is a total spare. Yeah. Like a spare tool. Uh, it's kind of, it's just an Irish slur. Kind of like a so, spare me. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. Sorry. Okay. Let's get on with it. What are we looking at? Oh, yeah. For the first time in a long time, we are starting to see some activity in the IPO market. It's coming from an interesting source as well in restaurants. So chains like Fogo de Chao, Panera and Cava are all aiming for an IPO in the first half of the year. Emmett, uh, we actually touched on this earlier in Horizon, but we were talking about a healthy IPO market is usually a key aspect of a healthy stock market. 2022 saw the lowest amount of money raised in the past 20 years. Uh, are an increase in IPOs and public listings a sign we may have turned a corner in terms of performance? Mike, the website that I use to keep an eye on upcoming IPOs is NASDAQ's website. So if you just go to Google, Google and stick in NASDAQ IPOs, you'll get a very good uh, conveyor belt of the, the businesses that most recently have IPO'd and are upcoming. Um, and it shows the filings and the pricings on both the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. As it happens, January 23 had more or less the same number of pricings as December and November 2022. And there's definitely more on that conveyor belt for February, but nothing is finalized for March. What I will say is that it's unlikely that the first half of 2023 will be a whole lot different to 2022 because many companies are continuing to face rising interest rates and maybe a recession. But this collapse of the IPO market has caused the pipeline of anticipated public listings to swell, which I think will get locked and loaded for the second half of this year. I wouldn't say that it's a sign we've turned a corner per se, but I do think there's a corner nearby. Like we might have turned a corner. We're in the corner. vicinity of a corner. We're, we're, in, be, we're in the vicinity of a corner. It exactly. might be in a U-bend. Yeah, we're in a U-bend. So is there a reason why it's restaurants in particular that are looking to go public right now? Well, every country has specific industries that are deeply ingrained into its psyche. Like here in Ireland, for example, we have farming and dairy produce and building and construction as nation-defining businesses. America has several such groups that define the country's personality and arguably the most ingrained of all is fast casual dining, which is an unavoidable part of everyday life for everybody in the United States. Whether you live in small town America or midtown Manhattan, dining out has been part of your week for your entire life. There are 33 restaurants listed on the NASDAQ, 
which includes Denny's, Jack in the Box, Nathan's, uh, they do hot dogs, there's Papa John's, Wingstop and so on. And as of this morning, on the other side of the road, on the New York Stock Exchange, there's 17 listed restaurants, which includes Chipotle, McDonald's, Shake Shack and Sweetgreen. So there are 50 pure play restaurant stocks listed on the two big American exchanges, which as a, by the way, is the exact total number of listings on the Irish Stock Exchange of all categories. <laughs> Anyways, as, <laughs> as you alluded to in your intro, Mike, on Monday, the Wall Street Journal ran a story that caught our eye and it was headlining with Panera among restaurant companies looking to test IPO demand. And this was quite interesting to me because Panera was already floated in the past. And as some of, as some of our longtime listeners will recall, was also part of the My Wall Street shortlist of great stocks before it was delisted. And I was also a shareholder in Panera for a few years. Anyway, apparently, as he said, Panera, Fogo and Cava are all aiming for an offering in the first half of the year, as long as the market keeps improving. And I hate referring to that dreaded chapter that was named after 2019. Still, it's an unavoidable fact that the virus decimated restaurants and they needed to stabilize before considering IPO. And to me, that feels like now, Guys, by the way, have either of you ever eaten in Fogo? Uh, I know several of the team have whenever we were in New no, York. Whenever it's, we go it's, to- it's one of those where there's like a, just a, a sword of meat and they kind of chop yeah. off it, isn't it? Yeah. No, I haven't, but it seems it's oh all my you goodness. can eat, isn't it? It's all you can eat. It's, it's yeah. an expensive all you can eat. About 10 of us went from my Wall Street after being in the stock exchange and um, and you kind of get this little disc and it's a traffic light, red or green. <laughs> if it's green, you're just a swarm of chefs come to you with your right, the big oh. sword, with the most delectable, delicious meat. But it really is a carnivore's delight. Is yeah. not uh, the place to go if you're a, a vegetarian oh, or a flexitarian or whatever. But meat sweats written all over it. All you can eat steak. Oh yeah, totally. You better go there before four. You're just not going to be asleep for a week. <laughs> It was kind of, I recall it as quite expensive, but I do also, as far as I know, and I don't have the stats, Fogo has the highest profit per member of staff of any restaurant chain in America because the chefs actually go out and serve you as well. So they've kind of reduced the total headcount. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of pricey. It was, uh, I, I can't, like, it struck me well, as it depends, expensive. It depends on your idea of pricey, though. Like, if you go in with tinfoil yeah. in your pockets and, like, yeah. an empty, an empty <laughs> Ziploc bag. Yeah, you got to go in with a plan. <laughs> you know, like, you isn't every restaurant, but every restaurant is all you can eat. Very few people leave a restaurant hungry. You've eaten all you want, yeah, but they kind point. of lead with that message. So you kind of push through the pain barrier. So the trick, by the way, for our listeners who go to Fogo is don't eat that kind of Brazilian banana for starter, which is just a banana deep fat fried and bananas are very filling. I was kind of, I'd probably (laughs) eaten about $3 worth banana and I was kind of done. You were wasted. wasted Was it banana or was it plantains? Plantains, I think is what you're (laughs) referencing. (laughs) It was definitely banana. And do they do, they do, do they do the strategic thing where they come out with the cheapest meat first? Like, do they hit you with chicken thighs and then like pork? No, they go straight in with the... Oh, straight in. I mean, if... They'll serve you anything at all, really, that, that moves and is legal to cook because really it is, <laughs> oh, it is a bounty. It is a farmyard on a skewer. Okay. Good, but have any, yeah. more, more importantly, have any of you been to Panera Bread where they're famous for the giant bread bowls where they serve is cheddar broccoli soup? That's Panera. Uh, yeah, I didn't Panera know, Bread. Yeah. I put Panera in my head is like, uh, uh, what's the one in London? The 
Pret-a-Manger. Pret-a-Manger. It's just one of these places that's everywhere and it doesn't matter. And it's kind of like people just go because it's in front of them. No, Panera, I think, is superior to Pret. A bit more expensive, Mm. but yeah. The Mm. third on the list, Cava's nice. Never been. Never Never been. It's kind of like Chipotle, but for Mediterranean food. So you kind of go and build your bowl and it's like a bit of hummus, a bit of kebab, a bit of labna, all that stuff. Mm. A few olives. A few olives, a few olives if you fancy. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting very sidetracked here. (laughs) But uh, Emmett, I think you were approaching that before we started talking about food for 10 minutes where you've invested in restaurant stocks throughout your investing career. And I think they are a very topical part of the market that maybe didn't get much of attention in recent times. But what in your eyes makes a great restaurant stock? Yeah, for sure. Well, off the top of my head, over the last 25 years, I've yeah, been an investor. If it, if in- it rhymes with Chipotle, basically. <laughs> well, no, I've, I've invested in Papa John's and sold way too soon. I'm actually, that's just one of my biggest regrets. Papa John's, Texas Roadhouse, Arcus Doradus, which I spoke about here in a recent podcast, Chipotle, Beglari Holdings, which is an interesting story. We might, might dive into another time on a different podcast. Chewies, I've been an investor in Cracker Barrel. Uh, and oh yeah, Panera, of course, and I'm sure there's more, but there's seven or eight right there. So the question is, what makes a good restaurant investment? Well, there are loads of restaurant metrics, but I'd say the top three are number one, system sales. And restaurants have several possible operating structures. Uh, they can have company-owned stores, franchise stores, or a mix of both. So there's a term called system sales, which refers to the combined sales across all the operating outlets, be it company-owned or franchise stores. Tracking system sales helps uh, us understand how the entire chain is performing as a whole. So that's kind of the first number you look at. Second, slightly different to system sales, sales is kind of the cousin though, it's revenue. And the revenue figure in the restaurant industry differs uh, because a restaurant's chain revenue is the aggregate franchising fee that it earned from its franchisees, including revenue that it earned from its own company-owned stores. So it's slightly different to system sales. And just especially with all these chains, like the franchising model is so popular. Oh, yeah, exactly. And when you look at a a company and you go, yeah, I think I get it, you really have to look under the hood. Like Starbucks is run entirely differently to McDonald's. So uh, the third third metric that I I would consider is... um, Oh, I was an investor in Starbucks as well. So it's not a, quite a restaurant, but yeah. Uh, um, in there, yeah. Yeah, throw it in. And Tim Hortons in Canada. So I think I'm up to 10. Mm. So then the third one is comps, which I think maybe is the most important comparable sales. So restaurant chains grow revenue by opening new stores and by expanding sales of their existing stores. And the comparable sales figure tracks the latter. It looks at how, do, how have sales gone Uh, from stores that existed a year ago, and it doesn't include the revenue contribution from new stores. Uh, And this is an accurate picture of the chain since newly opened outlets generally aren't profitable and kind of lack customer footfall in the initial days of operation. Also, comparable sales growth shows how much the company's revenue comes from its existing store network as it's growing. So I keep an eye on that metric. You can add in all these different other types of metrics like store additions, average weekly sales, um, revenue per average customer or average revenue per customer, revenue per employee, as I said with Fogo. And there's a whole load of other numbers divided by another number. But if you want to see 
you really want to see food that delights. It's not just a hot trend uh, and a formula for a restaurant that can scale from 100 units to like 10,000 units. Yeah. So when you saw when I saw Chipotle, and I invested in it very early, it was founded by a guy called Steve Ells, who was uh, the passionate co-founder, or was he founding? Co-founding CEO. He was a chef. He had a vision for bringing great Mexican whole food to the masses or organic Mexican food to the masses. And that in its own right is a catchy trend. You go, yeah, I like Mexican. I like that it's organic. I like that it's fast prepared and fresh prepared. So you kind of have to see a formula that you think is going to work well and ideally speak to somebody who's who's eaten there or eat there yourself. Very good. Yeah, that's. I think you said it there where the successful restaurant businesses have always scaled to such a level, but you need the underlying fun, fundamentals there to be able mm-hmm. to scale successfully. And I think that's yeah, so what true. you outlined. Yeah, um, I mean, we've seen here in Dublin, like restaurants, I won't name them, that we were fans of near our office. And when they went from two units to 20 units, the quality just did a slam dive. Mm, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. We won't, we won't name and shame. No, we won't. But um, we all used to eat there. And then in a very short period of time, the quality went right downhill and we all stopped eating there. And that was kind of uh, the real challenge of expansion for restaurants in action. Mm, May I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, did you do before investing in Chipotle? Had you eaten at Chipotle? No, no, I hadn't. Okay. And then I, I after, did, have you eaten there since subsequently? Yeah, actually, you know, it's one of the rest, it's at, one. If you've eaten at Dalteca, you've eaten at Chipotle as well. That <laughs> is not true. Incorrect. Same restaurant. No, They're Chipotle is better. I think Chipotle is better. Yeah, I definitely have eaten there since. But okay. it's funny. I invested in Under Armour ten years before I ever saw anyone wear it in the flesh and i think with chipotle oh yeah 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 like for years and years and years and then there was um one of the premiership teams got a sponsorship and uh i can't remember which it was was it aston villa Uh, which are they premiership anymore i can't even remember they go in and out but yeah and i remember being a bit starstruck going wow look calling the family we have shares in that company um (laughs) and same with chipotle i remember seeing one and going, wow, look, there's a Chipotle. Can we go in? And I wanted to order. So yeah, I, I was investing in Chipotle ages before I'd ever encountered the brand and kind of uh, tested it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have a question for both of you now. If you could own shares in a restaurant, public or private, what would you pick? Mm, good one. Well, Bunsen Burger in Dublin jumps to mind. It's yeah. ridiculously competitive food type though. I mean, burgers are burgers, but if but they it seems could to just get- something, right? Oh yeah, this hyper-concentrated menu. But if they could just list their salted caramel milkshakes, I'd, oh, I'd sell the farm and <laughs> <laughs> invest everything I've got. Okay, uh, I like that I don't one. Maybe yeah. In-N-Out. In-N-Out, is that a good one? I think In-N-Out are good when I was in San Francisco. Yeah, had- In-N-Out is very popular. But In-N-Out is actually quite similar to Bunsen in that very mm. limited menu, yeah. very a simplistic, a, allows them to... following. Yeah, allows them to be very efficient in terms of what they buy and bring in and customer expectations, that type of thing. I had In-N-Out for the first time uh, two Christmases ago. And it was, yeah, it was, they do animal style, which is where they cook yeah. a bunch of onions and put it on your stuff. It was, yeah, it was. I thought that's a secret because I had a neighbor who There's said to me, a neighbor here in, a neighbor here in Ireland, and she's from St. Louis, and she was like, hey, you're going, you're going to San Fran, be sure to go 
to in an outbreak. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go. She goes, call, call your server in and whisper you wanted animal, animal style. And I said, I have to say animal twice. What's going to happen? She's like, just say you wanted animal, animal style. So I felt a bit <laughs> foolish. John Tyrrell, my co-founder, no problem. How are you doing? Can I have two animal, animal styles? I was like, two of them. John, do you know what you're doing? Hang back there, fella. Because John is, John, like, it's not a big guy. It's not like he'll, and I was like, John, two. And John, no bother at all. Big wink. And uh, anyway, so I, I said, I'll have an animal, animal style as well. And uh, it was nice. I, I couldn't discern <laughs> what <laughs> happened when I said animal, animal. So they put onions on it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they, it's like onions. And then they have like a special sauce, which I think is meant to be comparable. You know, McDonald's yeah. Big Mac sauce is very famous. And it's like secret. Yeah. It's kind of like that, I think. Um, but if I had to pick one restaurant, there's actually a, a Chinese restaurant called Rice that's in Dublin that they started. It's one singular restaurant and it's very it's actually very good food. But they have gone down the ghost kitchen road. And oh, have yes, begun, yeah, begun sending their food to other restaurants. And I moved house last year, and I used to be able. I was used to be in the delivery radius of rice, which was wonderful. And I'm no longer in the delivery radius of rice. And like six months ago, they got a ghost kitchen set up in like an Indian restaurant closer to my house, and I was suddenly once again in rice's delivery radius. And it was really wonderful. Like getting to go on Deliveroo and see it was a recommended restaurant for me was it was just yeah. it really like was just the silver lining to my week. It was great. But then it only lasted about six weeks, six glorious weeks. And then it went away. But the food is really good. And they are doing more ghost kitchens because I see them in and around town where they have like a sign up on the window saying that this is also a rice. Um, yeah. So they have something going on They're They're growing, but conservatively. So, yeah. yeah. The ghost, the ghost chicken, ghost chicken, ghost, ghost kitchen, chicken. <laughs> ghost kitchen uh, concept is very interesting. I see you see a yeah. lot of it on Deliveroo now, don't you? It's that's what you know, Mr. Beast, the guy who's really famous on YouTube yeah. with like all the tweens. He set uh-huh. up a burger restaurant, and it's all it's it's available nationwide in the U.S. And it's just, just ghost kitchens. He's partnered with Denny's, the breakfast restaurant, to cook mm. the burgers and send them out. It's kind of brilliant. Yeah. He's a great guy. But Amory, what other hidden gems can you tell us about from the promised land of America? What other chains <laughs> <that> are, <laughs> what, Chick- what chains have you eaten in and went, no, that's Chick-fil-A good. Chick-fil-A is the big one, isn't it? Chick-fil- everyone, Chick-fil-A is really good. Everyone yeah. wants that to go public and I never will. I don't know. Yeah. Like no. Family owned and stuff. Yeah, mm. but they what's interesting about Chick-fil-A is the cost of starting a franchise is really low. Like the cost of starting a McDonald's these days is approaching like a million dollars to get the rights from McDonald's to get everything set up. I think to franchise a Chick-fil-A in the US is only like $40,000, which is very low, but you like your ability to turn profit from the restaurant is astounding. Um so it is a favorite. The the only thing with Chick-fil-A is they're from the south, so they're closed on Sundays. And there is many a time that you will want a Chick-fil-A yes, burger and you will drive to the restaurant and then be it sat in the parking lot and then be like, it's closed. It's, it's a Sunday. Sabbath. Sunday no. is the day you need it, like hungover, yeah. driving yeah. off. So, okay. That's the equivalent to booze. You can't buy alcohol in Ireland. Before 12 o'clock on a Sunday, it's this old hangover of a law where you just, <laughs> no pun mm. intended, where they didn't <laughs> want people buying alcohol before mass. Is that right? Jesus. I, <laughs> I don't know. Probably. I'm sure, yeah, you get alcohol at mass. It's to encourage you to go. There you go. Right. On that one. On that one, I'm moving us on here because we've been talking about fast food for 20 minutes. We're moving on then to the announcement from Google this week that they have launched Bard, which is an answer to ChatGPT from, well, now from Microsoft, basically. 
the, it's kind of mad to think about in the last few months since ChatGPT has been released, the downstream effects it has caused. So I obviously went straight to Google as it was kind of considered a threat to Google search's dominance. And after Microsoft's announcement this week that they're integrating it into Bing, that's becoming more and more real. So with the launch of Bard Amory this week, talk me through it and its terrible name. It's not great. Like they could have done a couple more iterations of that. It doesn't it sounds like a name I would have pitched for a newsletter here and you guys would have rejected. <laughs> like that's what it sounds like to me. But anyway, it was announced this week, uh, as you said, by Sundar Pakai, who's Google CEO. He did so via a blog post. We all love a blog post here. Um, the interesting thing I found about the blog post is he almost tried to play it off like the development was going on all the while. And it was merely coincidence that it was being announced right around the time that ChatGPT was all over the news. Um, but we kind of all know the truth here, which is that Google is famously somewhat hesitant to integrate language AI into its search functionality because I think the business – hasn't perfected it yet. And I think Google is very hesitant to impact the perception of its seemingly perfect, indisputable search product. Um, as we all know, like in order to create an AI product, you need to feed it with information and with language and Really, the only way to get the massive amounts of data that are required for that, you have to use the internet. But of course, as we all know, the internet is a pretty is, is a pretty dark place sometimes, and and that can mean that if you feed the AI with the wrong things, you get horrific answers. And so you have to be very diligent with what you give it, and it's you know it's 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 a process. Um, and Google's overall language AI project is called okay. I don't know if it's La MDA or if it's L A M D A, but anyway, it stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications. And this yeah, development has been going on. I think they call it Lambda. Okay, Lambda. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's been going on for several years. This is the foundation of what Bard is kind of built upon. Interestingly, though, Google's AI stance over the last five-ish years has somewhat flip-flopped, and that may actually give it a pretty significant disadvantage here now that we're actually bringing this technology to the public. So a Google research report that emerged in 2020 argued for caution with text generation technology, but by the time this report got up to high-ranking executives – it, they were pretty upset, and it led to the termination of Timnit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell, who are really prominent ethical AI researchers who at the time were employed by Google and were within their AI division. Interestingly, around the same time, though, other Google researchers who worked on the technology behind Lambda became frustrated by Google's hesitancy and ended up leaving the company, many of which – created startups that use the exact same technology or you know are along the same lines. And so it now means that Google's kind of playing catch up here, especially in a kind of ironic note. The GPT that chat GPT is built upon is a Google technology. They first invented it. And interestingly, Pakai somewhat alluded to, alluded to that in his blog post, kind of being like, oh, this was ours first. You know, we started this push. So if we want to, we could be dominant in it. But, you know, it's, it seems that they really all have been spooked here. Apparently back in December, he ended up calling an emergency meeting. He declared a code red and he began pulling engineers off of other projects and telling them they needed to focus on AI language development. So they're kind of caught in the back foot here with Microsoft, you know, beginning to integrate its technology so quickly to a product that is consumer facing. Um, but now we have Bard, thank God, um, which according to Pi will be – Thank God. Um, Pakai said that it will be rolled out to more testers immediately. It's only in, in beta, and it's apparently with very – they use the term very select users. So who knows? If you have if you have access to Bard and you're listening to us, let us know. We will ask you questions. Um, basically, he said that they're not willing yet to do a fully public debut, but it will be coming at some point. Um, and essentially – 
what it's going to do is it's going to allow Google's infrastructure. You know, when you you type in a simple question into Google and it sometimes just gives you an automatic answer. You know, it won't send you to a web page. Yeah. Something like, oh, what's 200 degrees Celsius and Fahrenheit? It'll just spit out 400. You know, it, it, it won't require you to click on something. They want to use it to build up that technology. So if you ask a nuanced question, um, the example that he gave in the talk was, is it easier to learn the piano or the guitar? Bard will produce something that says, some say the piano is easier to learn as the finger and hand movements are more natural. Others say that it's easier to learn chords in the guitar. So it's apparently trying to get us to that middle ground, you know, where it's very easy for you to get the answer that you want. But, you know, if it's a not, if it's not an easy answer, it can give you the com- like a v- view into the complexity. Um, now, of course, the name Bard... It comes from, you know, the terminology for poet. We most famously associate it with Shakespeare. It's not, it's fine. It's not great. It could be better. What would you call it if you had a choice? I don't know. Super super robotic magic answer box. It's hard. What was that thing that used to be really popular several years ago? Do you remember there was like a magic genie on the internet and you could like type in, you would think of a celebrity name and then it would answer Mm -hmm. 20, it could like guess it before. They should have just taken that guy. And made him the face of Google. <laughs> the Ac- I think Akinator. That been good. Akinator. Yeah. They should have yeah, made Akinator. Akinator part of Google. Yeah. That would have been great. Um, so at unsurprising timing here, Microsoft made a big announcement on Tuesday this week as well, basically talking about their AI investment. But the main thing to come out of it was the integration with ChatGPT and Bing, which is Microsoft's search browser. So is there... Is there a real thought that Bing could actually be a competitor to my uh, to Google search? Well, yeah, I think well, this is a difficult question. I think initially the draw to Bing is going to be the novelty factor. You know, ChatGPT has kind of made a name for itself. It has a bit of brand recognition. So I think people are going to want to try it out. I mean, I went to Bing today to see what it looks like, just, you know, doing research for this. But also, you know, I, I want to see how much of it is integrated. What does it look like? Um, but I do think if Bing could produce a better product, something that's faster or easier to use, I think over time it could convert users. But this change might need to be generational. You know, going to Google is, is almost like an, a reflux. We don't even say search it online. We say Google it. You know, that would be a pretty difficult transition to get away from that. But, yeah. you know, I think Bing is Bing and Microsoft are going to work pretty hard to get this in front of people and make them think, geez, like this is a better product. I may as well use this. You know, they plan on integrating chat GPT and the upgraded Bing into Microsoft Edge, which is very famously Microsoft's horribly looked down upon web browser. No one wants to use it. It's bad. Um, and they said over time they will build out features for other internet browsers, but they will reserve the best ones from Microsoft's native software. So clearly this is a, an overall push here to get people once again using Microsoft products. I also saw a really interesting thread on Twitter, which did get me thinking, that proposed that if Microsoft really wanted to give it its all in the search engine game, it would contact Apple. Because as we've talked about in previous podcasts, phones are really important for when it comes to you know getting in front of young people. Yeah. It is far and away the the biggest way that people get online these days. Sure and doesn't. Apple very famously sells its default browser rights and search engine rights every year for fifteen billion dollars to Google. And you know if you have an Android phone, Google is going to be your default browser because they made the Android iOS. But it's entirely possible that Microsoft rolls in with a twenty five billion dollar offer and is like, hey make Bing the default search engine on all Apple products and suddenly you're in front of billions of people overnight. Yeah. So mm. they could either could take it off Google twist. or take it off Google or start a bidding war. Either way, it's not going to be, it's yeah. not going to be good for Google. No, at the end of the day, I mean, the real winner here is Apple, as we all know. So, <laughs> how, yeah. how this conversation yeah. seems to end every time we talk about new technology. <laughs> yeah. oh, the metaverse is nice, but the real winner is going to be Apple. Yeah. Um, Easy. 
So getting a little philosophical and behind this, what are the long-term risks and implications of this kind of adoption towards generative AI, especially in terms of these chatbots? But there, there's a lot more behind that as well. Yeah, as, as we've kind of discussed, I think the the most pressing issue that we see talked about a lot, the one that's like most likely for us to see it in real time is, is going to be perpetuating hate speech and stereotypes. It's a huge issue for language-based AI. Um, you can obviously train it to avoid these issues by carefully selecting what it's fed. Um, but ChatGPT, for example, is – it's in beta, so it's receiving feedback from users all the time. We're helping to train ChatGPT every time we use it. So there is this sense that it could become this horrible, distorted, ugly mirror because, you know, so there can't be someone carefully watching over absolutely everything that it absorbs. I would also say it does have some accuracy issues. You can tell sometimes when it has pulled too much information from a single source. And when it comes to nuance issues, you want people to hopefully get a full view of things to be getting some sort of balanced perception. And so I would worry that the like very quick adoption of this type of AI or of chat GPT will disrupt the public's consumption of journalism or academic writing, you know, something which has or at least is meant to have a whole host of checks and balances in place to ensure people are getting a more complete picture. So as it is emerging right now, I think those would be my main concerns. There will probably be greater concerns in other industries going down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Amish, are you worried the robots are going to take over? We're at the start of a sci-fi now. Well, Two of you probably don't remember when Ireland swapped over from having pounds or poons, as it was known, to the Eurozone. We got one euro 27 cent for every Irish pound we had. And it was this period of great adjustment where no one was no one was really too sure what they were paying for anything. And it was all these kind of photographs going around of billboards outside or chalkboards outside pubs where they'd completely mispriced their products with bad math. Well, <laughs> I kind of feel we're going through, we're going to go through a similar period of adjustment where where we aren't too sure what's happening, but it's definitely happening. And I think, um, like, for example, I went on, when I, when I read the press release that Bard was now available, I went and Googled, show me Bard. And I ended up reading a letter from Microsoft CEO, um, but couldn't find a link to Bard. But the last paragraph was something, and I paraphrase, as long as this system does good and there's no... Uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? There was no negative outcomes or no significant negative outcomes, then we're happy to go ahead with it. So uh, I, I'll be in watching, I'll be in uh, watching mode and using mode. Mm-hmm. And I think customer loyalty half-life is quite short. I think when you use Google, you use Google because it's the best. If you try this other thing and it's better, that's what you'd use from now on. And the only thing I don't really get is we are so all so tightly integrated. Once you've created a Google login, a Gmail address, mm. uh, a, a YouTube login, whatever, uh, there's a kind of a, a long ribbon that runs through so many things. And I'm just not sure what it looks like to tear away from that. Passwords God. alone is a huge God, match. we'll all have to move on to Microsoft Outlook and it's so bad. <laughs> oh. I don't. I think I'll still be yeah. lo- using Google 20 years from now if it has all my passwords, to be honest. I'm not, yeah. I'm not do- going through all that. God, we'll be on Skype soon, just yelling at one another, <laughs> not be able to hear. <laughs> um, Marie, just before we finish off this section, is there a chance that this type of AI becomes commoditized? And like, is in, it, we've talked about Google releasing one straight after micro, uh, straight after Open AI, which is essentially under Microsoft's umbrella now. Alibaba has made talks about releasing one. I think um, Baidu as well in China. Mm. 
does this technology become universal in some shape or form? I think in the future, we'll probably have AI specialists in certain industries, um, and they will develop AI that's more attuned to certain needs. So right now we're fighting over search results and content generation. I think the reason we're so interested is because it's so consumer facing. You know, it's something that we could potentially interact with every single day. It could change every individual's life. But I would say in most other industries, there is AI being developed or already being used that, you know, there's probably a competition there where multiple companies are working on that. I would say even within the idea of language, like, I think you will need a different AI for something that's more conversation intensive or conversation based, like customer service, for example. I don't know, will chat GPT, would it necessarily be able to keep up with you if you had multiple requests and it needed to maintain a single conversation thread and you were talking about something really specific or blah, blah, blah. Um, So I think we could see a fight there. But also, you know, it's worth Dolly, which is owned by also owned by OpenAI, that produces images from prompts. Like that's quite weak in terms of its abilities. You know, it's consistently accused of being too reliant on artists' original works, and sometimes it really doesn't do all that much to deviate from the original source material. And you know, if you're if it's a visual image. That is a copyright issue. You know, we can't copyright individual words or phrases, but you can copyright concepts within art. So, I would be interested to see like development there there's probably going to be competition there i would also say you know like ai is needed for driverless cars and there's lots of players in that game it's needed for data analytics you know i think about ibm's watson which obviously went on to like win jeopardy but it also is like being used by legitimate companies to make predictions about trends and things like that so like i think ai isn't going anywhere i think like this type of ai that's so kind of I don't want to use the word blasé, but like it's used in such a casual manner. I would say a large tech company is going to be there, but there's probably going to be a massive market competition now for ones that are more specialized for, you know, other other industries. I think this is a massive turning point for pretty much everyone. Do you know, before we go off the point, I, I uh, sat down in front of ChatGBT and I put in, what are the key risks for the company? And I inserted company names, Shopify and Google. I put in the names of 30 companies individually, one after the next. And each successive answer became less impressive. The first one was really impressive. It kind of started to type out the five main risks for, I think it was Shopify, and was kind of a risk of key talent leading, leaving, including the co-founding CEO. The second one was something about regulatory work. The thing was about threat of new entrants. And it went through, and I was like, that's really well written. That's great. That looks correct. But I found repetition. Now, there are only so many business risks. I mean, Michael Porter uh, Professor Michael Porter has documented the main risks to a business and the main forces on a business. And there's only so many ways you can say it. But I did notice a repetition there that was just uh, uh, had me wondering. There's, a, I don't want to say there's canned answers because clearly they're not canned. It's artificial intelligence, but there's only so many ways you can answer it. That was the first thing. The other is I also said, tell me everything you know about my Wall Street. And it was uh, reasonably impressive. Only it said it's founded. Uh, it's found, uh, its founding CEO is a fintech entrepreneur called Column Line. Now Column Line, I know well. He's a great guy. He built and sold the business for hundred million. He's doing it again. Pay with fire. He he built uh, Relax, I think it was, and sold it. So I took a screenshot and I sent it to Column. I said, "Hey Column, congrats! I believe you're the CEO of my Wall Street." And he wrote back, "Great. When do I start? Or can I have a job? All right." better believe it when can you start so it's not getting everything right and i don't even know where it got this uh 
Callum Lyon is the CEO of My Wall Street. So the one thing I would say is that in using it, you absolutely must fact check. I, I a stock I was researching, I, I asked a question and it gave me a very solid, well-written answer and it was riddled with inaccuracies. But hey, look, it's V1.0. <laughs> it yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's hey, look, V1.0, we're on the right road. Yeah, absolutely. Uh- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, okay, we'll move on then. And um, we just want to give a quick shout out to Horizon. So with 2022 in the past and with one of the worst years for the market in recent memory gone with it, there has rarely been a better time to level up your investing journey. With Horizon, you can look over Emmett's shoulder as he builds Emmett, that is a not calm line, uh, as he builds a growth portfolio of the world's most innovative and cutting edge businesses. You can sign up for Horizon today through the link in our show notes. Uh, Mailbag. So uh, there was some interesting news come out of the world of streaming. Uh, Was it last week or the week before? Yeah. So Warner Warner Brothers Discovery has made deals with both Roku and Tubi. Uh, to license 2,000 hours of TV and films from their for their streaming platforms. Amory, I feel this is a big sign for things to come in the industry. What what's the implications of this? Yeah, when when I actually said this story to Emmett um, last week, I, I was like, "This is maybe the legitimate end of the streaming wars. We might have we might have made it." Um, simply because Warner Brothers seems to be the first old studio admitting that it isn't better, easier, or more profitable to build your own streaming service. It just isn't. Um, even more interesting, Warner Brothers owns HBO, arguably one of the most successful and popular streaming services. So. It's fascinating to watch them begin to strip content out of HBO to sell onwards. This includes Westworld, which we actually discussed a few months ago, mm-hmm. when it unceremoniously just disappeared off HBO, despite only being a few months removed from its final season. It just went away. Um, so Warner Brothers obviously has this massive back catalog. Uh, it owns a lot of tried and tested brands. And that means essentially that the work in terms of content development is done. You know, they already own this stuff. And sometimes they're lucky enough to own a brand that people want to continually revisit, you know, Harry Potter was produced by Warner Brothers. People watch those every Christmas. Um, so from a just a convenience perspective, if I was Warner Brothers, yeah, like I may as well just sell it every year for pure profit and take advantage of the fact that I'm a 100-year-old company that you know happens to own some very famous movies. Not to mention Warner Brothers hasn't had all that much success with original releases. Um, you know, they control the DC Universe and they control the Fantastic Beasts franchise. Both of those have been canceled. Those are big tentpole movies that they probably were hoping to pull a billion dollars in from. So that's a big hit. 
The other interesting development we got out of this was the decision to sell the same content twice. I thought that was really interesting. I would assume it probably meant that both players paid less. So so uh, um, Roku probably didn't pay an exclusivity clause, which would be quite typical of someone licensing content. Um and so that means if, if Warner Brothers maintains this policy, it could mean that their B-list content is essentially going to pop up on absolutely every streamer willing to shell out a couple bucks every year. So it's removing this idea that, you know, your streaming service has to be exclusive. It has to have exclusive content that's only there in order to encourage people to, you know, get your $10 subscription a month. So this is very interesting because it means that we probably are going to see a consolidation in streamers. We're going to see a couple big players. Those big players are going to license content they need to license. They're going to produce original content to bring people in, and that's going to be the end of it. Um, That's where I could see that going. That being said, I will give a point that Warner Brothers is also struggling financially, and it's in the midst of a pretty hefty restructuring. It's entirely possible that this company has become pretty desperate, and you know it's it's bloated, it's debt ridden. Um, you know, it's not exactly in the cutting edge of its field. It's not exactly a dynamic player that can make fun, risky decisions like putting seventeen billion dollars a year on content or whatever. So, you know, maybe this is Warner Brothers all out in its own, going right. We need to. We need to restructure. We need to get money in the door. We're just shutting all of this down. But I do think it is an indication of kind of where the old players are probably going to start thinking. I would also like to take this opportunity to say I have made this prediction multiple times to people in person, but I don't think (laughs) I've ever said it on tape, which is I think that Warner Brothers is going to sell HBO to another streamer. And that streamer can then sell HBO as a premium add-on because the brand is so well-known and it has like such great original content, you know, House of the Dragon, The Last of Us, which just premiered. I would love for the company to be Netflix who buys that. But Netflix very famously is not a huge fan of acquisitions and they haven't made any big acquisitions recently. And I think that they're kind of focusing in on themselves and building out their own suite at the minute. So I think my prediction would be if Warner Brothers is going to sell HBO, I think it could go to Apple. Oh, that's I think of... that's the streamer. I think that because HBO just has this premium brand and I think it fits really well with Apple's premium brand and Apple's whole streaming service is dedicated to being inexpensive. But the shows that we do put out are really good. You know, they won Best Picture of the Oscar last year's. So that is maybe where I could see them going together. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the concept of just licensing out those really popular shows that people rewatch and stuff makes so much sense now. Where like, imagine if you own the IP to The Office or Friends, and every yeah. single streaming company has to come and pay your their tithe because mm-hmm. if you don't have it and everyone else does have those shows that people kind of put on in the background and stuff, it's such a loss for you that it's yeah. almost like just a tax for having a streaming platform long term. Yeah, and I remember that stat coming out about Netflix where they basically said, listen, new and original content is important for signing up new people, but they have this idea of maintenance content, which is content that they know people are going to put on time and time again. And it's exactly that. It's friends. It's the office. It's stuff that people just watch on a loop. And yeah, like Warner Brothers owns friends. They're the original studio for friends. So yeah, they like if I was the head of Warner Brothers, I'd be selling friends every year for a billion dollars <laughs> and doing nothing else. Like, there's no need. Yeah. You don't need to be making the Flash movie that's now been postponed six times and canceling Batgirl. Like, it's just a lot of work. <laughs> just pack it in. It sounds good. Ugh. We'll have to write them an email. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. For uh, this week's elevator pitch, I just want you to pitch me a stock that is either reporting earnings coming up or that has just reported earnings, what you're looking out for, or a particular earnings report that caught your eye. Emmett, uh, what have you had your eye on? 
Well, I'll be watching Palantir on Monday as it was a very much discussed company post-IPO. But of all the earning calls from companies I don't own, the one actually I'm most looking forward to is Roku. Uh, just to dovetail. Yeah. Um, like, I've, you know this, Amory. I've suffered from the emperor's new clothes since I first looked at the business. And some of the brightest people I know, yourself included, Amory, just couldn't convince me that this was a future relevant business. Like Brad Winton from ARC, he's their chief futurist, and uh, I interviewed him here in Stock Club. He picked it as one of just five companies he'd buy and hold forever and went into great depths explaining why, as have you here on this podcast in the past <laughs> when we're chatting. And I'm still like, nah, don't think so. Well, you know, it appears the stock has bounced off its December low. It was something like 40 bucks a share in December. It's up about 50%. Um, for all the reasons you just explained, Anne-Marie, um, I'm very keen to kind of hear what the management has to say about the developments you've described. I think their earnings call is Wednesday, Wednesday morning. So cool. I will be tuning into that, no question or doubt. Uh, de- definitely, everyone can't be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What's the, what's the paradox? Is like, is everyone else crazy or is it just me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amory, what, uh, what earnings report has caught your eye? Um, I broke the rules on this one and I went for a report that's already come out Sorry, Emmett, because Emmett, <laughs> Emmett submitted his pick and then he was like, oh, it's already reported. I'll pick something else. And I had already done the same. I was just like, well, I'm just going to stick with it. I'm not changing. <laughs> I'm just um, not going to respond <laughs> to nope. that Slack message. <laughs> um, well, I'm very interested in Pinterest. I think I talked about it last week or two weeks ago. They're going through, again, a restructuring. They have an activist investor in there trying to shake things up. This is a company that for years, like since we have, since I have worked on picking stocks is such an interesting business in terms of monetization. It seems like it should be the absolute perfect place for ads to thrive, for e-commerce to thrive. And they just, you know, they need a little bit of help. It wasn't a great report kind of from the outside. You know, revenue growth only was up 4% year over year, reaching 877 million monthly active users. They actually returned to growth in that segment, which is good because they've been declining slightly. They That was up 4% year over year to 450 million. Um, and great if you already own their stock. They announced um, that they have been authorized to do a share repurchase up to $500 million. So that's nice. A little bit of a, a, little bit of a perk. But they're, the th- they're getting it done while they still can. Yeah. Um, but one thing I will say is when we compare those results to the broader category it exists in, you know, it's in social media, it's in ads, uh, that type of space, they're actually outperforming most of their other, you know, most of their competition. They said on their call, while 4 to 6% revenue growth typically wouldn't be something to write home about, we're actually outperforming compared to a lot of our peers. Um, I'd say the peer that they want to specifically mention there, but but didn't, is Meta. You know, Meta's revenue growth was flat year over year. Um, monthly active users have pretty much been flat for the last several quarters. So, um, they are growing somewhere. Also, average revenue per user in the U.S. and Canada increased to 6%. Again, it means that they are taking advertisement market share from someone or at least, you know, some growth at this point in this sector is impressive. Um, so that was nice to see. But still nothing that I was, you know, backflipping about. Um I'm going to keep watching them for the next couple for the next year. I like there is something here. Um, so it was nice to see, you know, a, a small win, but nothing, nothing too spectacular. Okay, very good. That's it for today's show, Les. Thank you very much for joining me. And thanks very much for listening. Remember, if you have any suggestions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. 
you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.